You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. On this special episode, we have members of possibly three classes. Our guest, Associate Dean of Admissions at Penn State Dickinson Law, Becca Sedman Krauss, graduated in 2012. Our panel, Tony, Tony, Shenley, and Seth are members of the class of 2023, and Joanne is potentially a member of the class of 2028. We always start with kind of an icebreaker question, so I'll ask everybody to answer the question. Netflix, Amazon Prime, or Disney Plus, what are you watching these days? Let's start with... Hi, everyone. I'm Shenley Kent, and um, I just finished watching The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. Hey folks, my name is Seth Trott. Um, I'm not really watching much these days, but I usually go to the Prime Video. Becca? So I'm uh, waiting for the 38th season of Grey's Anatomy to come out. And um, in the meantime, I'm a huge Grey's Anatomy fan. Um, in the meantime, I actually um, am in the midst of watching The Glorias, which is a movie about Gloria Steinem. And Joanne? Um- I'm actually in the midst of watching a K-drama called uh, Dolgo Soso Lala on Netflix. And then uh, my wife and I have been watching Star Wars The Clone Wars, which is a kid's cartoon that turned out to be more violent and more complex than Game of Thrones. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship it anywhere, even if, perhaps especially if, you're that one listener our stats say we have in New Zealand. And reminder that the opinions here are those of the panel and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists, present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. Now on to the episode. So, Becca, uh, the, the article we're uh, discussing today uh, was one that you wrote back when you were a law student in uh, 2012. And for our listeners who may not be lawyers or law students, could you briefly explain what it means for a judge to recuse themselves and why a judge might choose to do so? Of course. So in short, recusal is basically a mechanism whereby judges can remove themselves from cases, and they do this in order to maintain actual or perceived impartiality, which of course is important for ensuring confidence in the judiciary. So recusal is governed by the U.S. Code, um, specifically 28 U.S.C. Section 455, which requires federal judges to disqualify themselves in any proceeding where there, and this is the important language, quote, impartiality might be reasonably questioned, end quote. One reason justices refuse to recuse themselves is that 4-4 deadlocks leave the state of the law unsettled, and justices feel they may have a duty or necessity to sit in order to ensure an odd number on the court. How frequently does the court actually break evenly? Great question. So first, I will note that while Supreme Court deadlocks might not be that common, I think that's because in close cases, justices err on the side of sitting, um, hearkening back to these doctrines, these common law doctrines of the of the duty to sit and the rule of necessity, rule of necessity, rather than recusing themselves because they know what a 4-4 decision would mean. It would mean a procedural affirmance um, or affirming the lower court's decision. And if there was a proper substitution mechanism in place, recusals might happen more frequently, and perhaps we'd be able to restore faith in the judiciary as an institution. So now to answer your question with some real numbers. Um, As you know, the Supreme Court doesn't often grant cert and is highly selective with respect to the number of cases it reviews in a given term, usually around 75. Um, 
So again, while deadlocks may not happen often, when they do happen, it's a big deal because the lower court's decision is procedurally affirmed. So um, I don't believe that there were any 4-4 splits in the 2019 term, but I think there were about a dozen, maybe even 13, 5-4 decisions, which could have been a 4-4 decision had there been a recusal. And any of those 5-4 decisions um, could have been a 4-4 decision um, in the event of judicial incapacity, right? So remember when Justice Scalia died in February 2016, all of the media outlets were projecting a potential uptick in 4-4 splits. And that did happen to a certain extent before Justice Gorsuch joined the court in um, 2017. I think there were four 4-4 splits during the remainder of the 2015-16 term following Justice Scalia's death. Before then, the last time the court had issued a 4-4 decision was in 2010, when Justice Kagan recused herself in a copyright infringement case uh, due to her work as Solicitor General. And of course, for an example from last week's hotly contested election, how about the 4-4 split that affirmed the lower court's decision to allow Pennsylvania to count ballots received up to three days after the election? Um, so again, it might not occur all that often, but when it does, I think it's a pretty big deal. You mentioned uh, restoring faith in the judiciary. This would be more for the panel. Um, would you feel that there would be greater faith in the judiciary if there, it was more common that there were recusals and replacements were appointed to the court uh, to cover those recusals? Start with Seth. I'm not so sure. Being new, um, I'm a one else, so being kind of fresh to looking at the judiciary, I didn't realize how politicized it actually was. I thought it was more um, of uh, a unbiased body. And I think it still is for the most part, but but it is interesting to kind of delve into it and see that politics does to a certain extent play heavily into a lot of decisions and, and legal maneuverings. I think it would restore um, faith in the judiciary because um, just kind of reading Becca's article, I was kind of taken aback at um, some of the um, impropriety that happens on the court. Like when you think about like uh, Justice Thomas and how his wife was kind of like, you know, she had some kind of like um, adjacent work to do in in a, in a case that he was deciding. I mean, and it's, it's hard to imagine that, you know, there isn't um, some type of conflict of interest um, I mean, even though we know that there are a ton of lawyers out there and everything like that, but like Washington is a very small town. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, you have, it, it, it's bound to happen that someone is going to have, uh, one of the justices is going to have some type of conflict of interest. So I think that um, I really did like this approach because although, as Becca pointed out, it doesn't happen often, um, I think that, you know, just kind of like making my own assessment, reading that, I was thinking that maybe a lot of justices don't recuse themselves because, you know, they want to avoid the 4-4 split or whatever. But um, I do think that having this option available, and again, like it's already a justice who has been vetted, they've received Supreme um, Senate confirmation, they're very familiar with the procedures. I think that that would kind of, um, you know, if someone, if there is a conflict of interest and a justice can like recuse themselves, they could tap into this as a good option to restore public faith. And I also think that begs a question, as far as what's the line between having a conflict of interest and not. I mean, if you were once an attorney and you argued 
some case or have some kind of specific viewpoint, is that enough to disqualify you or to have a lawyer before the Supreme Court kind of raise this idea of impartiality? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is that the is that the statute uses the reasonableness standard, right? So as as a one alley, right, like the reasonable person um, is, you know, would a reasonable person believe that the, the justice is impartial in this instance. I think that's sort of the standard that the statute lays out. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of one thing that I also thought was interesting is that, you know, it's kind of incumbent upon themselves to kind of cough out and recuse themselves So because there's no one there to check them and say, hey, you know, like this, this might be a little too adjacent to some work that you were doing at some time. Like maybe you should kind of step back. Like literally it is up to them to, you know, kind of like put a flag on the play and say, I'm going to recuse myself from this. So I also thought that that was kind of problematic as well. So one of the cases that um, was was discussed in, in your article, Becca, was Laird versus Tatum, where Justice Rehnquist refused to recuse himself, even though he had previously expressed views in Senate testimony, um, would, and those views were contrary to the positions of the respondents. Is that a reasonable standard for determining if a judge is biased? I mean, Supreme Court justices are very high officials. They've held positions where they have to testify in front of Congress. Wouldn't they be expected to have opinions on topics like those? Absolutely. And I think that this is sort of, um, you know, a fun thought exercise. I don't I don't have a real answer um, and apparently neither does Congress. But I, I think that many judges and justices have opinions and have records, um, you know, about the cases that they hear and are, are asked to judge. And, um, you know, the system is designed so that we trust judges will decide these cases impartially without allowing their personal views or interests to interfere. And that sounds like a great idea in a vacuum, but science has taught us so much about unconscious or implicit bias. So should we be assessing possible bias based on past statements or past testimony or past actions? Or should we have all the justices take the Harvard implicit bias test and disclose their results? I mean, I think that humans by their very nature, or at least by socialization, are biased. And it's kind of interesting to, you know, where, like as Seth was saying, where do we draw the line? Um, and I think that there are there are options available if we're willing to um, if we're willing to think hard about this and think about what we want the judiciary to represent. I'm curious what everyone you know what everyone's thoughts are. I guess my I, I mean like who would be the person for the checks and balances? You know what I mean? That's kind of what my <laughs> my thoughts are. I absolutely like do think that there should be some type of mechanism in place because, like you're saying, there are a lot of just implicit biases that people have. Um, not necessarily um, that would be as prominent as saying like someone worked on something or whatever. But if there is just some type of bias that they would have that would cause them to be recused from a certain um, decide in a certain case, I do think that that is reasonable. But again, like who who makes the decisions? So that would be a hard part. Joanne, when we were discussing the uh, article before you actually read it, you said something to the effect that it might take a lot of. Uh, moral strength to recuse yourself as a judge. And having read the article, do you feel that our justices are exercising that moral strength? I feel like it's kind of hard to do because the way that um, recusal works. So you recuse yourself and then you no longer are part of, you can no longer like give your opinion on that or whatever. 
Um, and of course, then there's that possibility that there's a four four deadlock. So then you're thinking, well, why would I recuse myself? So it's like, like I said, there is like a lot of moral strength and I feel like it's not being practiced as much because that person is thinking, if I do recuse myself, then, um, you know, there could be a deadlock and then this case will just like go unfinished. Um, so it's like extremely hard for a person to recuse themselves. So I feel like it's not happening as often as it probably would if there was a system in place that made sure that there wasn't going to be a deadlock for certain. Question for anybody. Did anybody watch the confirmation hearings um, for Amy Coney, Coney Barrett, uh, the most recent justice that was appointed? I know I watched parts of it um, and it seemed that she, I mean, she was uh, almost evasive in the way that she answered questions. Was that perhaps because she didn't want to put herself in a position where she would have to recuse herself? I did uh, watch some of it um, and I, I don't know, without saying my opinions on her, I think that perhaps she was very evasive on a lot of the questions maybe because she didn't want to accuse herself so i think that may be the case um but then you know she evaded the questions so then you're just like mm. i mean then what's the point of being there are the acceptances of these biases is that kind of thought to be as inherent to the process and that you know the president chooses and then the senate confirms and they have the hearing. I mean, in theory, that's supposed to be you're supposed to know that person. And, and by appointing them, you sort of accept their their past. Right. Or is is that the counter argument to this or what, what do you think? Does that make sense? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I thought it did. I think we're back to Becca. Um, yeah, I mean, I well, so I think what's interesting is that, you know, an obvious instance where recusal is warranted is where the where where a judge has a financial interest, right, in in the outcome of a case, right? And so um, this actually was in, according to English common law, this was like the original basis for recusal. If a judge's finances were impacted, then recusal was required. And then it sort of expanded from there and Congress has enacted through their legislation, um, uh, you know, they've tried to expand that original basis, right? from merely having a financial interest to having any type of bias or impartiality, any case where the judge could be impartial. And so I don't think that accepting, I mean, I don't think that accepting, you know, just because a nominee is confirmed means they're, you know, okay, go on all cases, right? We see that Justice Kagan, we see Justice Kagan recu recusing herself from cases where she argue the case as solicitor general because it's not that's not proper. She can't decide the case that she argued at the lower court level, right? Um, and so I, 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 you know, I think that Justice Leahy, or sorry, Senator Leahy just gave him a promotion, um, or I guess, you know, a, a lateral transfer. Um, <laughs> I, I think that this this um, makes sense. And also, Tony, to go back to your question, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I didn't, watch the the confirmations in their entirety but i did watch parts of them and read about them um and i think what's interesting is that um you know evasiveness has really become the norm regardless of what side you know what as going back to what seth mentioned about how politicized the 
the confirmation process is, you know, we've seen on, you know, quote unquote, both sides of the aisle, candidates, uh, nominees being evasive. And so I think that, you know, they're they're comfortable answering questions about their jurisprudential philosophy. We certainly know that Amy Coney Barrett um, clerked for Justice Scalia and adheres to his philosophy. Okay, so she can answer questions about that. Um, but I think what's really interesting is, you know, kind of going back to this notion that we saw in Laird, right? Slightly different context, but, um, you know, she was also pressed really hard on her statements regarding abortion, including her academic writings. But specifically, I know she got a lot of attention for the 2006 anti-choice newspaper advertisement that included her name as a signatory and uh, supporter. And the ad included um, language that described putting an end to Roe um, and and just using, you know, language calling Roe, you know, quote, barbaric. Um, and so she noted in her confirmation hearing that she signed this petition when she was leaving her church in, a, in her capacity as a private citizen. And so I think this really begs the question, right? Like going back to that line drawing, like how impartial do judges need to be all of their lives, right? And, you know, these issues that impact, it's it, these issues that impact us, like can a human be impartial? What is the reasonableness standard? Like of, we all have an interest in Roe, right? Whether like people care about these issues, regardless of what side you're on. Um, so, you know, Senator Leahy was there pressing Justice Barrett um, in in the in the confirmation from from, you know, from his screen. And so I think it, it just it does raise these interesting questions about whether she should recuse herself when Roe is challenged. Um, should all the women on the court recuse themselves? What about only the women who've had abortions? Right. Like it's what is reasonableness? in this context? What is impartiality? I don't have any of the answers, just a lot more questions, I think. Does that make the statute uh, essentially void then? Because it is inherently broad or like ill-defined, I guess? I mean, I think that I'm uh, hyperbolizing a little bit here. I, I think that we do know, right, like what, or, or, or there's some, um, there are some lines as to what reasonableness is, but I'm just saying, you know, for uh, again, a thought exercise, a law school um, exercise, it's it's worth it's worth pushing, it's worth thinking about, right? Is uh, Senator Leahy's proposal still alive? I don't believe that it did go into effect at the time you were writing about it. Uh, frankly, I have no idea. Um, I I I don't know. Um, I loved writing about this, and then I will admit that. You know, after I graduated and started working at a law firm, I kind of set this aside and I was super excited to, to learn about your podcast and, you know, sort of joking with Shenley that I would that I would love to be a, a guest and I'm happy to be here. But I will admit that I did dust this article off um, yesterday and, and reread it in trying to, to remember what I wrote. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know where that stands but if it's if if there isn't a proposal i really think that there should be so take note congress that's actually not a bad segue into another topic that we didn't pre-plan but i know uh joanne you wanted to ask a question about writing law review articles okay i didn't know i'd be the one asking the question you said i'll come up with the question maybe 
Um, so I just wondered, um, so that actually told me, um, sorry, that Tony told me that, um, that this is part of legal writing, but I was just like wondering, how do you choose which cases to cite when you're writing? Cause you know, there's gotta be so many. So how do you choose the specific ones? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, thank you, Joanne. So just kind of rewind a little bit. Um, when I was um, invited to join the Law Review, I was really excited. Um, I had some ideas about what I wanted to discuss. I knew I probably wanted to discuss something related to the Supreme Court, related to um, you know, sort of maybe identity and ethics. And so I was sort of kind of grappling with what I should discuss. And one of my senior editors actually mentioned this um, legislation to me. And I and I grabbed onto it and just kind of ran with it. And so that's really where like my idea came from. It was through conversation with a, a basically a classmate. And so then once I kind of had this legislation or this proposed legislation, what I thought I would do would, would be um, to assess both the constitutionality and the desirability of it. So I think that the legislation is desirable. Um, apparently I concluded that it was constitutional. Um, and, and so in terms of writing the, the, the writing process, the research process, that sort of lends itself, or at least in this case, to the cases that I, that I wanted to cite or reference in this article, because there were, um, you know, there were some major cases that I wanted to discuss, right? Like the one that, um, Shenley mentioned earlier, um, about, you know, Justice Thomas, um, you know, possibly not, you know, not recusing himself as frequently as, his, as he, as he should, even though his wife, Ginny is very involved with, um, like Coke industries and the Coke brothers and, um, you know, maybe attends those meetings, but doesn't disclose. And there was, of course, was like the whole duck hunting, the duck hunting incident, right. With, um, president Cheney. And so there were just some that were part of the, the kind of conversation in the media that I wanted to address. And then there were other cases like the more historical cases, like, um, Laird v. Tatum and some other cases related to the constitutionality that kind of came up when I was assessing, you know, whether an assignment was constitutionally permissible um, because it was someone who had already been appointed and the justices wouldn't be appointing, they would be assigning someone who was appointed. So that was part of the exercise that I went through. And um, I, I also used a lot of um, like media, right? Like Adam Liptek, who writes for um, the New York Times and other um, legal scholars and stuff like that to help to help craft the argument and frame it. Sometimes, uh, especially recently, there there's a criticism of the Law Review article in general that you can get your point across better in professional blogs or things like that. Do you think Law Review articles still have a place in legal scholarship and in the broader discourse? I do. I do think so. Um, but I don't think they but I think that there are also other great ways of researching and writing and communicating ideas like blogs. Um, I think that, you know, and also what you're doing here, podcasts and even video editing. I mean, all of these are very important skills, especially as we are, um, you know, becoming an increasingly digitized world. 
Um, there's a lot more happening kind of like in the media space, but I don't think that necessarily means that we should, um, you know, throw the institution of law review away. I still think there's value in it. Um, but I also think that there are, there's value in a lot of exercises. What do you think? This probably has nothing at all to do with your point, but I think that as far as I go for law review, um, I think it would be, I think it's great. I think it's awesome, but I also feel like it can be um, uh, the competitive. I don't like the competitiveness of it. Um, I think that that, uh, that aspect of it, I, but I do like how at, um, at Dickinson, um, you know, either you can, you can be invited uh, academically or you can write on. I like that there are those two options there. Um, but I also just feel like, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I always feel like I, I'm not, I don't fit in with an attorney crowd because I'm just not a competitive type person. And so that level of competitiveness, that's, that's one thing that I don't necessarily like, but as far as the articles go and the content, I do enjoy reading them. And I mean, even I didn't really read them until, um, you know, I started to participate in this form, but I, I think that there's value there, but it's the process I don't necessarily like. I hope uh, I hope there's value in it because we'd have to probably rename the podcast, huh? <laughs> well, I, we did actually our second episode uh, on face masks and the Constitution was a professional blog uh, that Courtney had chosen. Um, I kind of gravitated towards law review when I was setting this up because it's the peer-reviewed form of legal scholarship, and I come from a biology background, and peer-reviewed journals are kind of the gold standard for scientific uh, dissemination of scientific information. <laughs> Um, and I, I certainly hope that all of us can participate in the law review at Dickinson if that's what we want to do. Um, I have noticed, I, I don't know if I should be saying this on the podcast, but when the entire class is there, like in the rights and equal protection class, the entire uh, 1L class is, is a part of, um, everybody who has participated in the podcast is also the people who are participating in the, in the open discussions in front of everybody. And I don't know if that's a selection bias or whether the podcast is having a beneficial effect. Um, so, I mean, I certainly want to continue running this. Um, but the mechanism by which ideas get moved around, there's probably a lot of space for a lot of different mechanisms. Seth? I'm going to change the subject. I have a, I have a question for, I guess, everyone. Um, if if we're ready to go that direction, um, so concerning the sort of the perceived impartiality of the, of the judiciary, and then the fact that legislatures are tend to um, kind of get bogged down in partisanship and have a hard time passing laws these days, does that put more weight on the judiciary than to essentially legislate in in some regard? And is it is it the right thing to have? Um, the judiciary kind of stand back and stand away from making common law instead just kind of deciding right before them, given that the legislature has not been kind of implementing law? Oh, if that was for everyone, I mean, that's what we see, um, the difference in philosophy in between torts and criminal law, right? In criminal law, an assault is defined in statute and it's defined narrowly. And then torts and assault is is kind of defined amorphously and you know um and the objects are different but where we're taking away people's liberties or we're taking away people's rights directly we want to be very clear and we want the legislature to make those decisions when it's just when it's a question of fairness it's okay for the judiciary to be making common law or at least that, that's kind of the takeaway i'm getting Ms. um 
So I feel like I am absolutely evolving as a law student because before um, I would always hear this, like I would hear people say, you know, don't legislate from the bench. And I would always just be like, uh, you know, like I kind of knew what it went, meant, but not really. Um, and, and now that I'm in law school, I still I see that um, I, I can see, you know, what this actually means now and how, you know, there are legislators who are elected and the court is not, you know, they are not elected officials. So I'm not I'm not necessarily sure how I feel about it. I feel like my thoughts are still evolving on that, um, but I can definitely see it a little bit with a little bit more clarity now. Um, I, I'm still going to be 100% biased when a court rules in favor of something that I agree with. I agree with the court. When uh, elected officials do something that I agree with, um, I'm with them. So, um, you know, I'm still a work in progress. I really resonate with that, Shenley. Um, even, you know, as a, a, a law school graduate and someone who's, you know, passed the bar in a couple states, I, um, I think that like each branch has its purpose. Right. And I think that I am often frustrated by the, by each branch, by each branch. Um, I do have a question for you, Becca, as a graduate and as a person who passed the bar, um, this is something I've been thinking about lately. Do we finally ever meet this reasonable person that we hear about? I'm waiting. I'm trying to. I haven't met them yet. So, Yeah. I guess not. Okay. <laughs> Do we have any other questions uh, for Becca? Anybody? Well, I will just note um, that some states do have for their highest court, of course, it's not the highest court in the land, um, but some states do have substitution mechanisms. And so this this proposal isn't that outlandish. And I just I do really hope that there ultimately is some type of way to encourage recusal when it's when it's deemed warranted um, and and following that recusal also avoiding a 4-4 deadlock. Okay. And on that note, we are just about out of time. Thanks again to our guest, Dean Becca, and our panel, Seth, Shanley, and Joanne. A reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast, and tell your friends to listen because that helps us get more listeners. Audio post-processing by Mohammed Salim, and this podcast now stands adjourned.